What's up, Will? What's up, Seamus? I'm I'm doing good, man. Yeah. Seeing patients, consulting patients. How about you? Uh, well, I'm not seeing any patients or consulting patients, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm doing okay. Thanks. Hanging in there. So um, our yeah. guest today is a really cool guy. We had a great conversation with uh, our mutual friend, Max Lugavere, and uh, we talked about all sorts of amazing stuff. Yeah. He's a filmmaker. He's health and science journalist. He's the best-selling author of Genius Foods, and now he has a new book call, uh, coming out called The Genius Life, which we dive into in today's conversation. Yeah. So let's get into our conversation with Max. Thanks for being on the show, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yo, so good to be here. I mean, I, I'm a fan of both of your guys. I'm excited to see that you are now like the duo taking over the wellness podcasting yeah. world. We're Oscar and Felix. Thanks, man. <laughs> what I love is a little known fact. Uh, Max and I both got our first entry into wellness in like the 80s and 90s bodybuilding uh, world. I myself what? wasn't a bodybuilder, but <laughs> my dad was like this, like I thought it was normal to have dads like in Speedos, like lubed up. <laughs> my dad was a bodybuilder and uh, Max was in that same sort of world. And we've come a long way, haven't we? It's not, Wait a second. Not the you, same you, thing you guys as. both... Wait, were you were you greased down in mineral oil too? No, no, no. I was not. I was not. I was never actually a bodybuilder, but I became. I was really interested in bodybuilding. Uh -huh. Not the not the sport of it, like not the fanfare and like getting on stage and wearing speedos and the fake tan, and not, like uh -huh. not that aspect of it, but more the like the science of it, like how uh -huh. to how to yeah. eat and you know supplement and lift in a way that you know can take your body from zero to hero, basically. <laughs> so did you subscribe to all the magazines? I didn't subscribe to the magazines, but I did subscribe to at the time what were like sort of the the, the modern day equivalent of message boards. They were called news groups online. Uh -huh. Like one was like alt fitness and like there was alt bodybuilding. And uh -huh. I don't think these things exist anymore. These are like uh, Yahoo, yeah. Yahoo groups or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I would get to them <laughs> through, I think it was like Outlook at the time, MS Outlook, which was like the email client. Mm -hmm. This is back yes. in the, this is like the late the late 90s. So I was like a very early adopter for this stuff. And I was just like reading about the science of, you know, ketogenic diets and mm -hmm. fat loss and all that stuff well before anybody was talking yeah. about how, it. How many skinless chicken breasts you needed to eat? Oh my God. <laughs> like <laughs> what, what, the, what the ratio was. I was eating a lot. I drove, it was so funny because I would drive my mom crazy at the time. I would, I was, I would always go shopping with her, which is something that I really enjoyed to, to do. But she thought I was crazy because I would always load the shopping cart up with, all kinds of things, you know, like from cottage cheese, which <laughs> nobody in my family ate, but yeah. I decided that it was, you know, it was yeah. a high protein food that yeah. I, so I started eating that. I would just load up with canned tuna. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I didn't know what mercury was at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, you know, this is like, a, it's a dollar fifty a can and it has like 30 grams of protein per can. And so I was just eating, I would stock it in my room actually, because I didn't want anybody else in my family to take it. So my room, my bedroom was- <laughs> It just smelled like cat food. <laughs> yeah. It was it basically smelled like cat food. And like, you know, other <laughs> other kids my age probably were their rooms had like sports paraphernalia mm -hmm. and you know comic book. Well, I had some comic books too, but yeah, I was just I was loading it up with supplements and and all that stuff. And that were was you, my first entry into health and wellness. Were you working out, or were you just sort of you're gonna I'm gonna game, <laughs> game the system by eating cans of tuna fish? No, I was working out. I, I became really interested in fitness because I was never an athlete. I was always terrible at sports, mm -hmm. but I was a nerd. I was like a gamer and I was mm -hmm. a computer programmer and. You know, in retrospect, what I realize is that bodybuilding and, f and fitness has a lot in common with gaming yeah. and uh, and programming and things yeah. like that. 
And, um, and so that's why I I was attracted to it. And I was also attracted to it because I was kind of nerdy and introverted and I was obsessed with superheroes. And so it was like the perfect storm for me to, to become interested in this topic because I, I, I saw the gym and supplementing as a way of, you know, sort of transcending my not very impressive self at the time, you know? (laughs) It's funny because it's a very common path that a lot of kids go down. I, I don't know if you, you remember the kid from, um, Jerry Maguire, yeah. That, that, so he was like this nerdy oh, kid yeah. with glasses. I don't know if you've seen him since then, but he's like, I forget. His I have. Name, he's totally ripped and jacked. And even like yeah. Lou, Lou Ferrigno, who you know, was the Incredible Hulk, he started bodybuilding and lifting because he was kind of a misfit and he had um, he had some hearing loss and, and like found bodybuilding and weightlifting is like this sort of nerdy uh, escape. It was a way to be an individual. And you see that a lot. I think a lot of people end up going that route. Yeah, totally. I think there's a lot of people, people approach it for different reasons. I mean, I think some people approach it because they're athletes. A lot of people approach it because maybe they have body image issues. You know, there's a lot of sort of insecurity in the fitness world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of obsession, people that are prone to like, you know, becoming obsessed with macros and calorie counting and things like that. I think that the, the, yeah, when I, when I look back, the reason why I became interested in it was, I think mostly because of the fact that I like the fact that you could you could iterate on your routine and then mm-hmm. see that reflected in the mirror or in terms of like, you know, hard numbers and like, you know, lifts, for example, right. uh, in the gym. And so that kind of feedback yeah. loop, that, that instantaneous feedback loop to me was very attractive. Right. It right. Was, you could progress and watch the needle move. Yeah, exactly. In a positive direction. Yeah, exactly. The, the new book's amazing, by the way. Uh, we yeah, had the really, Genius really like Foods and you. now the Genius Life. I love the subtitle too. It's heal your mind, strengthen your body and become extraordinary. So uh, for people that uh, haven't heard about it, can you kind of explain how the book came about and what is a genius life for you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, so, I mean, you guys have the backstory. I was, you know, I've always been interested in this topic. Um, my career, I, I began interested um, in pursuing a medical degree. I started college pre-med, but I ended up becoming seduced by an introductory film course, and my academic career took a completely different turn. I ended up double majoring in film and psychology. And uh, that led to me getting a job, um, not in the film business per se, but as, a, as an on-camera journalist working for a news and information network that Al Gore started. Mm-hmm. In 2005, it was called Current TV. It reached 100 million homes in the U.S., and I was a journalist there. Um, And I got to cover stories that were both sort of light and topical, but then I also got to occasionally talk about health and fitness and and technology and how technology was augmenting health, and then some really serious topics like geopolitics and immigration and things like that. Um, So I was kind of honed in that that world post-college. It was sort of like a, you know, graduate school for journalism, I guess you could say. When I left that job, um, I started spending more and more time in New York City, which is where I'm from. And with and around my mother, who I'm very close with, I, uh, you know, I, I'm the firstborn child in my family. I'm the oldest, and I've always had a very uh, close and loving relationship with my mom. And it was in about 2011, she was 58 at the time, when she started to display the earliest symptoms of a strange neurological condition. And she would ultimately be diagnosed with a form of dementia mm-hmm. called Lewy body dementia which is sort of like having Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease at the same time. It's a very rare condition. Alzheimer's disease is the most common neurodegenerative condition. Uh, but Lewy body dementia, people might be familiar with it because it's what uh, it was revealed Robin Williams was suffering from before he killed himself. Mm-hmm. So my mom had that condition. It was, it was terrible and heartbreaking. And that, you know, the, the fact that she was diagnosed with that without any prior family history of any kind of neurological condition, 
uh, sent me down the rabbit hole. I basically became obsessed with trying to understand why this would have happened to my mom. I began digging into what's called the primary literature, so peer-reviewed, you know, uh, journals, and you know, all admit that at first it was very difficult. I'm, you know, I wasn't academically trained. I didn't understand everything that I was reading, but I just kept going. I kept reading and reading and cross-referencing, and ultimately, I realized that I had these media credentials that I had earned working in Hollywood, and that. And I decided to exploit them to reach out to experts around the world, scientists and and clinicians that were that were really kind of like exploring how our diets and lifestyles can affect brain function and and you know how my mom's life over the years would have potentially predisposed her to developing what she had developed. Mm-hmm. And so that led to me writing Genius Foods, which is really a, a nutritional care manual to the human brain. But what I learned after writing that book is that nutrition is just one part of the story. And I know that both of you guys mm-hmm. will, will attest to that. There are so many aspects of our, of our lifestyles, you know, how we live our lives that, that influence in, in powerful ways how we feel, our health, our predisposition to weight gain, to, you know, cognitive malaise, to, mm-hmm. you know, mental health problems. And so I began writing my latest book, The Genius Life, and then something even more horrible happened. Uh, it was Labor Day of 2018, so I had I had just gotten the book deal to write The Genius Life um, in June of mm-hmm. 2018, and I was super excited to to get to you know write about all the new research that I was uncovering, mm-hmm. and I had just gotten back from Burning Man, uh, and I was in LA, and I got a call from my brother who was back in New York City, and my mom was in the emergency room, and mm-hmm. she had turned yellow. So, you know, when you turn yellow, usually, um, I mean, it can, you can turn, a person can turn yellow for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. If you eat too much beta carotene, mm-hmm. you right. might, you know, develop an orange hue. But when you're, the whites of your eyes also turn yellow, that's called jaundice. Right. And jaundice can occur for a number of reasons. But uh, in my mom's case, what had happened is she had developed a tumor on the head of her pancreas. And she was mm-hmm. diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And it was already in stage four at the time of diagnosis. Oh, God. Yeah, it was it was awful. And so, you know, imagine going from, you know, basically becoming obsessed, you know, being motivated by a loved one to become obsessed with one condition and then all of a sudden being diagnosed with a, you know, another probably even more awful condition Mm -hmm. that, you know, next to nothing about. Right. And so, you know. The prognosis was three months, and that's how long it took for my mom to to leave us. And it was terrible. It was the worst thing that I'd ever experienced. And so that that led to me really kind of focusing in the genius life on, you know, what it is about the modern world that's making us all so ill. Right. You know, I think that in yeah. ma- in many ways that my mom was the canary in the coal mine for just mm-hmm. the way that we're living. And you know, certainly she was particularly unlucky, but. Uh, when you look around statistically, I know that you guys are, are, are familiar with this and, you're, and your savvy audience is probably too, but people are not well. Right. And so that's kind of yeah. become my mission mm-hmm. to just sort of like expose the many ways in which we're mm-hmm. living that are probably not in our best interests. Yeah. What I, I think is interesting about it and something that you talk about a lot in your new book is all of these, the, the myriad factors that paint a picture of ill health for so many people. And when we start to hone in and just thinking that, that there's one simple solution, there's not. There isn't like one thing we can look at and identify. Yeah. I mean, I think that that um, the more you learn about diet and lifestyle and, and nutrition, the more you realize that it's, it's impossible to know everything mm-hmm. um, and that there really is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all diet. But that being said, 
most people actually do eat sort of one size fits all diets. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why we're in such ill health. I mean, if right. you think about the way most people eat, most people by and large eat plant-based diets. 60% mm -hmm. of the calories that people consume come from plants, come from just three plants. I should clarify. Right. <laughs> and, and, and those plants are, are wheat, corn, and rice. Mm -hmm. Those are plants. If you look yeah. through the yeah. aisles of your supermarket, which is where, you know, the vast majority of what are called ultra-processed foods, you know, yeah. are, are available to they're us. They're derivatives of those three. They're derivatives yeah. of those. They're, they're plant, they're by and large mm -hmm. plant-based foods. Um, yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, a vegan diet is going gonna, is gonna to predispose us all to, to Lewy body dementia, but I will tell you that my mother ate a very plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. She avoided, um, she never ate red meat. Mm -hmm. She only ate meat uh, to, you know, to meet her protein requirements because that's right. what, you know, in her mind was the, the sole value of, you know, animal-sourced mm -hmm. foods. So when she did that, she ate lean chicken breast, mm -hmm. never, you know, with any skin, always very low fat. Mm -hmm. She never ate any eggs. The irony is that my mother lived her whole life being afraid of heart disease. Uh -huh. And so she was actually afraid. She was, she lived in accordance with what, you know, a dietitian of the 80s and 90s would tell you about heart disease right. avoidance yeah. in terms of diet over Doing that time. Doing all the right things, yeah. Doing all the right things. So she ate very lean meat. She <clears throat> never ate, uh, and, she, and she ate meat so sparingly because she was, um, you know, and I love her for this. She was a big animal rights advocate. Mm -hmm. Um, so she she ate she grudgingly ate meat when she did and she mm -hmm. did it for health. Right. But it's clear to me that uh, a low meat diet didn't didn't protect her certainly. Mm -hmm. And right, yeah. and you know my hypothesis, which I'd of course never be able to prove, is that if she ate a diet that that was more inclusive of of you know grass fed beef and and mm -hmm. you know wild fish and things like that, uh, that it would have potentially helped her. What's up, guys? It's Will. As you probably know, my day job is consulting people around the world via webcam at my Functional Medicine Health Center. Normally, I'm consulting one-on-one, -on -one, but I'm really excited to announce the launch of my brand new Functional Medicine online group class. This virtual group class is my solution to continue making Functional Medicine more accessible and more affordable for people around the world. Designed as a starting point for those who are new to functional medicine, this online group class allows you to learn more about your health from a functional medicine perspective, equipping you with the knowledge and tools to improve your health. During the class, I will review the comprehensive blood labs that you've completed before the class and give an explanation of the optimal ranges for each and every marker and what it means for your health. You will also have a chance to privately ask me and my team questions and have them answered in real time. You will also receive your own takeaway list from your labs so you can refer to it at any time after the class. In addition, everyone in the class will receive customized action plans based on their lab results, personalized lifestyle recommendations, and a list of foods and supplements to focus on and foods to avoid, all based on your lab results. You will leave the class feeling empowered and educated about your wellness. Learn more at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. So you, in the book, you break down, you talk about food, but you really talk about all these really cutting-edge non-food factors to live a genius life, to live optimally 
well. One of the um, my favorite chapters was the chapter about the circadian rhythm and the, mm-hmm. the science that you put in there. Really fascinating stuff. You have a lot of health books that have a lot of overlap information, but your book, really a lot of fresh stuff, not the case. And I love the way that you put it in here. And you talk about the super chiasmic nucleus, the SCN, basically our body's uh, like uh, internal clock in the hypothalamus. And you talk about these melanopsins. Can you break down the science about our sleep cycle, about circadian rhythms and, and, and what we can do to optimize that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to the brain, sleep is, is medicinal. We now know that when we sleep, the brain actually cleanses itself through a a newly discovered network of ducts that has been named the glymphatic system, named Mm -hmm. because it uh, it it's the its function is facilitated by glial cells, which are part of the brain's immune system, and it sort of resembles the lymphatic system, which is a system of ducts in the body that, you know, act as our sort of waste disposal system. Um, And when we sleep, we know that that system becomes most active, and it's when certain proteins that accumulate over the course of the day get flushed out. And these proteins are relevant to neurodegenerative conditions because their aggregation sort of defines in many ways these conditions. So amyloid beta is one protein. Um, These proteins are not bad. They're not inherently evil. But for a long time, their presence in the brain, their accumulation in the brain was, you know, it typified Alzheimer's disease. You would basically Mm -hmm. see the the brain gunked up with with this protein. And another protein called tau. And tau would sort of get, uh, you know, what's called misfolded. So, you know, proteins in the body have these very intricate origami-like structures. They're, they're, they have these like 3D um, configurations. And when they get misfolded, it makes them less able to be recognized by the body. And it also makes them more inclined to stick together and gunk up. Mm-hmm. Now, when we sleep, these proteins get flushed away to a remarkable degree to the point that on one night of poor sleep, levels of tau can be measured in cerebrospinal fluid, they increase by 50% um, in the fluid. Now, that hasn't yet been measured in the human brain, but mm-hmm. it's believed that that sort of is indicative of the fact that there's just a higher you know, concentration of these proteins on one night of poor sleep, and that sort of increases the thinking is the odds that these proteins are going to be able to stick around and thus aggregate. And amyloid concentration in cerebrospinal fluid increases by 30% on just one, one night of poor sleep. So right there, I mean, that's an indication that you know, yeah. s- sleep, you know, has all, you know, has a, has a number of um, custodial uh, roles to play in terms of the brain's maintenance. Mm-hmm. We also know that sleep is crucial for the body's network of hormones. So, you know, Will, when you were on, on my podcast, The Genius Life, uh, we talked about, you know, hormones and how hormones are basically the marionette strings that guide every aspect of your being. Mm-hmm. Um, and sleep, mm-hmm. is a, sleep is a master regulator for our hormones. If you, you know, just on one night of poor sleep, you're essentially pre-diabetic the next day. And that's a temporary phenomena, mm-hmm. thankfully, if, you're not, if you are actually metabolically healthy. But the insulin resistance that you experience on just one night of poor sleep is the equivalent of having gained 20 to 30 pounds. So basically, metabolically, on one night of poor sleep, you're obese the mm-hmm. next day. Right. How does, how does that work? Is that because your cortisol levels are not high enough in the morning when you wake up? Or is it, what, what's causing that? Like, what, why, what is the actually physiological condition that's causing that? Yeah, I mean, it could be a lack of, of you know, uh, the appropriate diurnal cortisol rhythm the following day. It could be the fact that melatonin might not have completely subsided. So melatonin is the sleep hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very important. It's not just a sleep ho- hormone. It sort of it, it regulates autophagy, which is when mm-hmm. our cells clean house. It's involved in, in cancer protection. 
we want melatonin to be high at night so mm-hmm. that it helps us get to sleep and it does all those rejuvenating mm-hmm. you know things that melatonin does but on shortened sleep when we wake up via an alarm clock for example for many people melatonin is still elevated in the morning mm-hmm. and melatonin actually can make you less insulin sensitive so i mean the reason for that when it's the daytime, mm-hmm. our hormones are sort of aligned in a way that supports daylight-associated activity. So running around, procuring food, procuring a mate, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the different things that, that require metabolizing food, digestion to be, you know, working at its peak and to, and to allow us to have, you know, ample energy. Melatonin helps us get to sleep. And, you know, when we – later on in the day, we all develop what's, you know, what's, what's sometimes referred to, it's not a medical term, but afternoon diabetes. So you're not mm-hmm. actually diabetic, but you become, mm-hmm. less, you become less insulin sensitive as the day progresses because the body is winding down, essentially. The kitchen mm-hmm. is preparing to close, mm-hmm. uh, which is a term that um, Dr. Sachin Panda, who I've interviewed mm-hmm. uh, you know, before writing my book, uses. The kitchen basically closes in the body, and so that's when things start to wind down. Digestion is not as good. Metabolism is not you know, working at its peak. So you're just less insulin sensitive uh, later on in the evening. But if you wake up prematurely, mm-hmm. you know, when your sleep is shortened, you basically experience that sort of afternoon diabetes in the morning, mm-hmm. which is not, you know, which is, which is physi- physiologically <laughs> not meant to occur. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's another, that's one of the reasons, and, and I talk about this in the book, why if you're waking up super early for work and, you know, you have shortened sleep, it's probably not in your best interests to eat a high carb breakfast, mm-hmm. um, you know, first thing in the morning, because your your body is probably not going to be as effective at partitioning the sugars, you know, that come from those foods, those kinds of foods, uh, early in the morning. Right. Um, you mentioned in the book about the basically that circadian rhythm, and at night, that sort of internal clock that we have, the SCN in the in the brain. You mentioned just a half an hour of like I think it was like a thousand. Lux worth of light. Basically, it was equivalent to like a half an hour of light from a cloudy day can reset that SEN. Can you explain that a little bit and like what technology is doing to our circadian rhythm at night? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that our bodies know what time it is, you know, we don't have like internal iPhones or, or you know, anything like <laughs> anything like that. Our bodies primarily uh, recognize what time of day it is via the light that enters our eyes. Mm -hmm. We have proteins in our eyes, in the retina, that are not actually involved in vision, in the formation of images in our brains, but rather to perceive the uh, a level of intensity of light to set off the body's internal clock. The proteins in the eye are called melanopsin proteins. And what they do is they interface directly with small chocolate chip-sized region in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is housed in a another region called the hypothalamus. Now, these are all, you don't have to remember these terms or anything like that, but anything that's pretty much in the, you know, in and around the hypothalamus mm-hmm. is going to be really important. It's a very primitive brain structure and it controls, you know, reproduction, our desire to mate, it's, it controls hunger, it controls our metabolism. So it's basically like... It's not involved in any sort of the higher order, you know, intellectual capacities of the human animal. Mm-hmm. It's like survival. So that 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 right there shows you how important these this clock, this internal clock is. And in fact, you know, every organ and every you know function of the body is under circadian influence. So depending on what time of day it is, your body's you know either preparing for activity, preparing for rest, and all the things that is, that come with those two sort of modes of operation. Um, and again, just crucially important. So this 
SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, basically then it controls everything else in the body. It like it it regulates the secretion of various hormones and things like that. And for it to be set off by the proteins in the eye, you basically need a light intensity of about a thousand lux. To put that in context, when you go outside on an overcast day, so I'm not even talking about like direct sunlight, your your eyes are perceiving anywhere between a uh, thousand and ten thousand lux. So it's very easy to to set off and, and anchor your body's circadian clock just by going outside on an overcast day. Uh, just as a reference, if you were to go outside and it's like you're in LA at noon in the middle of the summer and it's direct sunlight, you get up to anywhere between you know it's like fifty to a hundred thousand lux. So mm-hmm. it's you know extremely bright. But all you need is about a thousand lux. And the reason why it's not super sensitive why you need a thousand is because you know for our hunter-gatherer ancestors if it only took maybe 200 lux then a campfire would would cause your circadian clock to become all disjointed mm-hmm. or the light from the moon or stars would be you know so a thousand lux it's it's pretty insensitive it requires a, a decent amount of light but it's not it's not uh, so intense that you can't easily get it from just going outside during the day the problem is that Due to artificial lighting, as as Will mentioned, you know many lights that we're exposed to later on in the day can easily reach a thousand lux. Mm-hmm. So, I actually have an app on my phone. It's called it's called Lux, and it's not. I don't think it's as accurate as a as a as a standalone device that that measures this. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, you can easily see with this with this app that if you were to go into say a, a drugstore or a gym or a supermarket. Um, at 8 p.m. at night when your brain is supposed to be winding down, mm-hmm. you know, again, not exposed to super bright light, that a lot of these contexts actually can reach a thousand lux of light. Mm-hmm. And that's a major mm-hmm. problem because it tells your brain that it's daytime when it's not. Right. It's, it's essentially nighttime. So what that can do is that it basically suppresses the release of melatonin because later on in the day, the suprachiasmatic nucleus sends a message to the pineal gland, which is nearby, to start secreting melatonin, which again mm-hmm. is this hormone that's responsible not just for sleep, but for, you know, antioxidant repair status and, uh, you know, autophagy, which is mm-hmm. when your cells clean house. And so you're basically pumping the brakes on all of those rejuvenating processes in your body by exposing yourself to bright light. So that's a direct uh, mechanism, which I think, you know, obviously the research needs to f- come out and further flesh out, but mm-hmm. at least hypothetically, that is a, that's sort of a direct route by which bright light later on in the, in the day can mm-hmm. influence your risk for major diseases. Autophagy mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, involved in, in cell repair and in, in the cleaning up of worn out, um, cellular components. And it's, it's thought yeah. to be involved in cancer protection and things like that. Mm-hmm. So light is a form of medicine in the day, uh, in a, in a positive way, but then at night it could also be, um, you know, sort of like a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. So right. how, how much light is, I mean, you know, let's say you're doing everything right and you're trying to, you're trying to be as, um, in tune with your circadian rhythm as you can in a modern world. And you're waking up without an alarm in the morning at five thirty in the morning as the light's starting to come up and you're going to bed at eight thirty or nine o'clock at night. And then, what happens, like how much light, when someone turns on the light or someone turns on the television, is it suddenly all out the window and you're screwed? Or like, what, what or is it is it repeated exposure to blue light later in the day that, that causes more damage? It's mostly about the intensity. So if you're just flipping on a lamp, you have nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, but, it, but again, it depends on the light intensity. So mm-hmm. in my home, I have fairly 
they're they're bright enough so that I could read, you know, at night without mm-hmm. strain, but they're not so bright that I'm going to need to, you know, shield my eyes if I get up in the middle of the night to pee and I need to put on a light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But certainly some people have fluorescent lights in their kitchens that are very bright and not not only are they bright, but they have a, a specific color temperature that mm-hmm. looks a lot like sunlight. It's very blue. Right. So one of the recommendations that I make in the book is actually to change out the bulbs in your house, to use mm-hmm. warmer bulbs. Obviously, you know, if you have decent enough lighting in your house, you're not going to need artificial lights during the day. But at night, you really should be cautious of the lights that you that you have, you know, and make sure that they're as warm mm-hmm. as possible. You know, mm-hmm. a nice amber hue as opposed to a more cool mm-hmm. temperature. You want them to be more amber colored. And then mm-hmm. in, uh, in parts of the house where you might, you know, like the bathroom, for example, where you might have to get up and pee, you don't want to really have to put on the light late at, you know, in the middle of the night. I would use night lights mm-hmm. and things like that. And I'm also a big fan of blue light blocking glasses, which, mm-hmm. you know, in an industry rife with gimmicky, you know, biohacking products and, yeah. and mm-hmm. devices and things like that, I think blue light blocking glasses are one of the few things that actually work and can have a measurable impact on your health. Mm-hmm. So do you, right. do you find that you, do you, sleep, a, do you sleep better if you wear, I mean, because I've, I've never been able to notice an effect. I mean, I wear them periodically, but I've never really been able to notice an effect, a difference in my quality of sleep. With the blue light blocking yeah, glasses? but there might be other factors. I mean, I, I haven't historically slept very well, so mm. I don't know if that's the, like the, that's the, the clear indicator, but I haven't noticed a perceptible difference. I'd like there to be, but... Well, it depends. If you're not using your laptops late at night and mm. you're not a big TV watcher and you're not exposing yourself to bright blue light, then you wouldn't really expect a major difference. You know, I would look to other areas that mm-hmm. might be able to improve right. your sleep, like the temperature of your bedroom or right. um, maybe your diet or, you know, there there are a different variables that could affect a, a person's sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But for me, I, you know, spend a lot of time watching TV. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm known to binge watch shows on Netflix <laughs> and, uh, and, I, you know, and I work late into the night sometimes. So, yeah, for me, I think that they make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've done studies where mm-hmm. they found that actually blue light blocking glasses can uh, reduce uh, blue light induced melatonin suppression by about 60%, which is, mm. wow. yeah, which is significant. And the, the idea is you yeah. want to wear them for about an hour or two uh, before bed. Got it. Yeah. it's awesome. You have a lot of very informative charts and like my love language is charts so I, <laughs> I love that in the book <laughs> you mentioned in the book that uh that when we go to bed a couple hours later on the weekends and and i do that it's uh, equivalent to or close to being equivalent to being jet lagged every monday morning and uh i found that really a, a great way of putting it yeah 100 percent it's, it's actually called social jet lag. I mean, so if you think about it, if you go to bed every single night at, um, you know, during the week, let's say you go to bed at 10 p.m. every night so that you can get up early and go to work, right? And that's just like a conservative, you know, estimate. I'm sure many people stay up later than that. But if you go to bed at 10 uh, p.m. every night, uh, Monday through Thursday, and then Friday and Saturday night, you're staying up three to four to five hours later. That's the equivalent of crossing time zones for the weekend. I mean, that's mm-hmm. no different yeah. than flying to Europe for the weekend, right? Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> and so, that's first of all, that's a major um, impingement on your body's circadian rhythm. But then, you wonder why everybody feels crappy mm-hmm. come Monday morning, right? Because you're starting Seriously. every week essentially jet lagged from that from that yeah. weekend excursion that mm-hmm. you didn't take. So we're basically just shooting ourselves in the feet. Uh, and that's, you know, that's basically what uh, what is now being referred to as a form of social jet lag. But 
it's interesting because people people tend to hate Mondays. Mondays are very stressful, mm-hmm. and stress is uh, you know it's an indiscriminate killer. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that this is just sort of one of those areas where if you if you kind of zoom out and you connect the dots, you can see why making the decision to stay up so late on Friday and Saturday night can actually influence your stress and how that might lead to mm-hmm. poor health down the line. One of the things that we realize about the body, you know, it's sort of, it's a double-edged sword because the body is highly adaptable, um, but it also likes consistency. Right. It also mm-hmm. really likes consistency in terms of diet, in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, meal times and patterns and, you know, um, things like yeah. that. So. You even mentioned that about fasting of studies that showed like intermittent fasting. We're all fans of that, but the people that are not consistent with their, their feeding windows, they're more prone to like binging and, and going off the, the rail. So consistency, even with fasting is something to consider. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of skipping breakfast. Um, you know, there, there is no such thing as an essential breakfast, but uh, as we all advocate for shorter sort of meal times or feeding mm-hmm. windows, uh, you know, in light of the new research that's coming out on time-restricted eating, I still think it's important that we maintain consistent schedules. So if you normally eat breakfast um, at 10 a.m., for example, uh, and then you decide to skip it once in a while and, and eat breakfast instead at noon, for example, um, that might not be in your best interest, you know, which... Because I think that the research is is showing that again consistency is important. So people that, and this study was performed in, in uh, women, but what they found was that um, for women who skipped breakfast, there was no major uh, impingement on their health unless those women regularly ate breakfast. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think consistency is is just important because you know your hormones will sort of adapt um, in a way that uh, I think that's that's beneficial as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, just throwing the sort of unexpected wrench into the wheel. Can you, um, right. I, for, I mean, obviously everyone is very different, but can you walk us through like what your ideal routine would be in an ideal 24 hours with Max? Sure. Like, I mean, I think that like, um, I think one of the things about my routine is that I'm, I'm very much um, just like a normal person mm-hmm. trying to be healthy in, in the year, I guess, 2020 mm-hmm. is what it is now, right? Um, I'm not, you know, extreme in terms of my views. I try to follow the science, but I'm not like, you know, I don't consider myself like a biohacker. I'm not right. like about to like implant things under my skin or, you know, th- yeah. or, or, you know, go to these crazy lengths that you're seeing some people in the fitness community go to. Right. Because I think that that's, that defeats the purpose. It should be, th- these should be principles that are adoptable by, by the masses yeah. exactly. and, and, yeah. and, you know, and don't stress you out too much. Yeah. Sustainable. So. Generally, when I wake up, I try to wake up um, without an alarm clock, but uh, you know, not everybody's going to have that luxury. So when I do need to wake up early, I use an app called Sleep Cycle, and mm-hmm. I have no zero affiliation with with this app, mm-hmm. but I think it's a it's a wonderful app because what it does is it, is it listens to your bed while you sleep. It doesn't record any of the of the you know what it hears, but when you're in deep REM sleep, your body basically below the neck is paralyzed. So there's mm-hmm. no movement when you're in REM sleep. So it, it uses the microphone to determine when there's zero movement. Because during all the other phases, you might turn, you might you know ruffle the sheets a little bit. So it uses your the phases of your sleep to determine when you're when you've entered a lighter phase of sleep, and based on what time you need to wake up, it'll wake you up during a you know within a half an hour window of that time. Mm-hmm. 
at the during the point at which you're at the lightest phase of sleep. Um, so you don't wake up feeling groggy and sort of hungover like you do when the alarm clock just indiscriminately goes off and sometimes wakes you up. You know, I mean, you might have experienced this. I know that I certainly have. The alarm clock, a, nor- a regular alarm clock could wake you up during REM sleep mm-hmm. when you're having dreams and you just feel hungover for the entirety of the day right. after that. You just can't yeah. shake that feeling until you go to bed the next day. So sleep cycle basically takes care of that. Mm-hmm. I wake up and then I go into the kitchen and I'll have uh, some water that I um, get from my re- reverse osmosis water filter. Um, so unlike a, a typical filter, like a charcoal filter, this actually reverse osmosis is the best system that you could use to remove all kinds of heavy metals and potential endocrine disruptors uh, from your water. So one of the things that I talk a lot about in, in the genius life is the fact that our world has now become saturated with virtually untested uh, industrial chemicals, many of mm-hmm. which can affect the way that our hormones work, which affect everything from, you know, behavior to development to sexual function to fat storage and our risk for diseases. So I use a water purifier, reverse osmosis, that basically removes everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll add back in some trace minerals that I get from a, from a supplement. And this is it. You know, this, this system that I use, um, it just fits on the countertop. And, you know, you might have to pay a little bit, you know, upfront for it, but it's something that you have for a long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I use it every single day. And so I'll drink some some water with some some you know trace minerals added back in, and that's just to rehydrate. And it makes me feel great. Sometimes I'll drink coffee, although lately I've been sort of off coffee. I've been giving my adenosine receptors a bit of a reset because I feel like I was experiencing that sort of wired and tired feeling mm-hmm. a little too frequently. But so right now I'm not drinking coffee. Sometimes I will. And then you know, depending on where my fitness goals are, sometimes I'll have a protein shake in the morning because it's been generally about 16 hours after my last meal. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I'm on like a really strict sort of fitness regimen, I'll do like a protein shake. Um, but sometimes I'll just go to the gym fasted. I like to work out in the morning fasted. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some evidence that shows that independent of weight loss, a fasted workout is really beneficial from the standpoint of metabolic health. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I tend to feel that I have a lot of energy when I work out fasted because I think, you know, part of it is that many people spend a lot of the day in a fed state mm-hmm. and dealing with sort of postprandial fatigue or like mm-hmm. post meal fatigue. In the morning when I'm fasted, I don't I'm not dealing with any of that. I'm sort of at like my baseline energy levels and I just right. feel mm-hmm. I feel great. So I go to the gym and I do like a resistance, primarily a resistance training workout. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to build strength both in your upper body and lower body. Having bigger muscles and, uh, you know, I mean, this is sort of maybe a, a little bit of where my bias, having grown up interested in bodybuilding mm-hmm. comes in. But um, but I think that I think doing resistance training, getting stronger is crucial, especially when we see that, you know, sarcopenia, muscle loss as we age is a real problem. Right. But having bigger muscles, it's a muscles are like sugar uh, disposal banks. Mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. Like they're one of the few places in your body where you can actually store sugar. The body mm-hmm. doesn't store sugar. It's very good at storing fat, but it's mm-hmm. its ability to store sugar is similar to like, you know, it's on par with the storage space in a New York City apartment is what right. I say in the book. It's like, it's we don't, we don't have a lot of options. <laughs> yeah. But when you build muscle, you actually do have a means of, of storing any sugar that you eat in your diet or if you, you know, want to indulge a little bit here and there. I think that's important for people, you know, to feel mm-hmm. good, to be able to eat, you know, uh, a confectionery treat when they want and feel mm-hmm. good about it. The key to doing that healthily is resistance training and to build, you know, strong, strong muscles. So then I'll do that. And then, uh, usually I'll have my first meal of the day after a workout. And mm-hmm. because it's been a number of hours since my last meal, 
and I just had a, a, a workout, um, I'll prioritize protein. Mm-hmm. I think protein is crucially important. There's this push now in the longevity movement, and and you know it's talked about in certain longevity books. It's it's theorized that doing like a low protein diet is good for longevity. I disagree with that. I don't think that's ever been shown mm-hmm. uh, in in humans, independent of just overall calorie restriction. I think the benefits of eating more protein outweigh the risks, is particularly mm-hmm. when you're on a resistance training mm-hmm. program, which you should be. Right. Um, so I prioritize protein at every meal, whether it's grass-fed beef or, you know, chicken with the skin on for that collagen uh, or, you know, um, wild fish, eggs, things like that. And then- What I'm, about carbohydrates in this window after, yeah. after, after working out? So it, it, for carbs, I think it depends on your goals. I will, uh, you know, concede that I think, so I have a, I do tend to be biased more towards a low carbohydrate diet, mm-hmm. high vegetables, mm-hmm. you know, which I know yeah. I'm on the same page as Will. Uh, I'm a huge fan of vegetables, but I am sort of like a low starch, low, you know, grain, grain, low grain, if not grain free. I'm on, I'm on sort of on that plan because I think many people are, have problems with, with glucose, uh, regulation in their bodies. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when you're at sort of a, a, a somewhat more advanced level in your workout routine, I do think that you can add carbs back in mm-hmm. and that they can actually yeah. benefit and improve your strength. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll be the first to say, I feel when I'm, when I'm eating higher carb foods, mm-hmm. I feel way stronger in the gym. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a little test actually recently. I started, I was just eating like uh, all kind of like you know, using air quotes, like clean sources of carbs, like popcorn Mm -hmm. and things like that. I was just like kind of pushing it. Like I was like flooring it a little bit with my carb Mm -hmm. intake. And then I was going to the gym and I noticed that I was feeling very strong, like Mm -hmm. a lot stronger when I was Mm -hmm. eating more carbs in my diet. Um, Yeah. And so it's really about your goals. It's like, are you trying to, you know, gain a lot of strength and really improve your lifts or, Mm -hmm. you know, are you just trying to sort of maintain and be healthy without thinking too much about it? In the latter case, I would say prioritize low carbohydrate foods, dark leafy greens, um, vegetables, roots, tubers, I think, you know, mm-hmm. are fine. But if you're, if you're working out really vigorously, I think like, you know, a grain here and there is, isn't going to, mm-hmm. isn't going to hurt you. The problem yeah. is most, many people have glucose intolerance, you know, they're basically right. insulin resistant right. um, or overweight. And so for that person, I think you should probably go on a low carb, low starch diet. Mm-hmm. There's a place for kindling on the fire, right. you know, that those carbs, those clean carbs. But I think what Max's point is, it's definitely my point. I, I agree with that, that metabolic flexibility is the, is the goal here. And there's a place for clean carbs if you're working out for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then how do you kind of, I mean, cause I, am imagining that as you're looking at sleep and recovery, it's not something that, and we've talked about this with, with other people, um, that it's not just sleep doesn't start five minutes before you get in bed. It's kind of part of the whole process of your 24 hours. Um, so, you know, it's usually it involves planning, making sure I know kind of like what I'm doing in the evening, when I'm going to be going to sleep. Uh, dinner usually is about three to four hours before that. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, again, I'll prioritize protein. Um, sometimes it'll be a, uh, a starch depending on when I've worked out. If it's, if I've, if I worked out in the morning, which is what I usually do, then I won't have a starch at dinner. Cause again, we tend to be less insulin sensitive mm-hmm. at night. If you do work out in the evening, uh, or even the late afternoon, it's fine to have a starch at dinner because, mm-hmm. you know, exercise gives you the benefit of what's called insulin independent glucose uptake. So 
even though you're not going to be as insulin sensitive later on in the day, your muscles sort of act like a sponge regardless for glucose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's fine at that point. Uh, but generally I'll prioritize vegetables, um, like, you know, dark leafy greens. I'll try to have like a big salad or some crucifers. Crucifers vegetables are really important when it comes to detoxifying. Mm -hmm some of the endocrine disrupting chemicals uh, and other sort of xenobiotic compounds that we absorb uh, you know, in the environment, crucifers, they're, they're crucial because they actually stoke our body's own detox pathways. So I'm trying to incorporate those mm -hmm. at every meal. Um, and I try to eat until full. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't hold back. You know, I, I think it's that having a mechanical stretching of the stomach by eating filling foods is important. And yeah. a, another important tip is to always be present with your food. So, you know, there was really interesting uh, a really interesting study that was just published, and it, it came out just in time for me to include it in my book, that people who um, are distracted when they eat, so whether it's with printed reading material or mm -hmm. their smartphones or a TV, tend to eat about 15% more calories. Right. So, you know, be present with your food and, you know, and try to avoid checking, you know, your favorite photo sharing app or or dating app and you'll eat 15 percent fewer calories which is going to have a measurable impact on your waistline right so yeah and then winding down for sleep just making sure that i've got if i'm if i'm planning on watching something uh i'm doing it on the earlier side or you know you got your glasses i got on. my glasses on um kind of winding down getting into that into that zone of like activating my body's rest and digest and kind of just chill mode mm -hmm. of being and um good stuff yeah it's all good stuff uh, i've been fm upping that for sure that's awesome they've done studies in china where they found that a broccoli sprout concoction helped um you know air pollution is a major problem in china right that uh broccoli sprout extract extract because of the sulforaphane that it contains helped um people in the randomized control trial better excrete um carcinogens like benzene and acreolin which uh we know that we you know inhale copious amounts of uh, here in the U.S. as well. And so what's important about the cruciferous vegetables is that they, they not only provide the sort of uh, precursor molecules to your body's own detox compounds like glutathione, which is your body's master mm -hmm. uh, detoxifier, but they actually stimulate the production of them because they're xenohormetic at a, at a, in a very sort of mild way. They're actually toxic to the body, right. but the dose makes the poison, right? So if you eat just a small mm -hmm. amount of broccoli sprouts or, or any other cruciferous vegetable, they actually stimulate your body's own sort of detoxification mm -hmm. and the benefits far outweigh the risks. And, uh, you know, any cruciferous vegetables are going to be able to do this, mm -hmm. um, provided they're raw or cooked and you add uh, mustard seed powder into the mix. Huh. Mm. So, yeah. So if you're cooking your cruciferous vegetables, you're kind of negating their ability to produce some of these de detoxifying compounds that I think are among mm. the most important, but you can sort of um, give them back the ability to do that by sprinkling mustard seed powder, which mustard is actually also a cruciferous vegetable. Sure. Um, which yeah. I'm sure you know the this. The brassicas, yeah. Yeah, the brassicas. You sprinkle it on like your cooked broccoli, mm -hmm. adds like a really nice sort of spicy flavor. It doesn't taste like mustard. And you, re you, you give them back the ability to create these detoxifying compounds. Wow. Yeah. Great, 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 great little hack. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you guys for listening to our conversation with Max Lugavere. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about Max is that, I mean, where he's coming from, it comes from a place of love of having lost such an important person in his life and wondering if there if there's another way, if there's anything that could have, that can good that can come out of that loss. 
and uh, and I, I just really appreciate that. I feel like he's he's putting good work out into the world and providing information that to me is really, really approachable and easy to understand, um, very well sort of distilled mm -hmm. to these takeaways, these nuggets that are super applicable. I've, I really have enjoyed his book, this new book I, I really like a lot. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that just like I, I said during the conversation, I think a lot of health books and we, you and I read a lot for our jobs and for the show, uh, a lot of them can have overlapping information. And what I really appreciated about The Genius Life and what Max does is really provides new research. It's mm -hmm. a fresh perspective. And he explains it in a way that's very thoughtful and like thought provoking in a way that, you know, as a, even a functional medicine practitioner, I didn't even think of it like that. Right. So definitely uh, appreciate his perspective in this space. For more on Max, you can go to his uh, to his website, which is maxlugavere.com. That's M-A-X-L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E.com. He's also got a really great podcast, which you've been on, called The Genius Life, which we highly recommend. And you can pre-order a copy of his new book, The Genius Life. It's coming out March 17th. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. All right, everybody. Now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. Jeff asks, what's your favorite way to get around? James. Oh, well, for me, probably by bicycle. I love riding around, my, riding my bike around. You know, I, I use cycling as for fitness, but I also just, I love to jump on a, uh, we have these jump bikes here in, in LA that are, you know, they're like a, a city bike that you can jump on just to scoot a few blocks. Um, I just love, I love being outside um, on a bicycle because mm -hmm. I feel like you're really absorbing everything. There, you're so much more cognizant of your environment. You're not insulated from your environment like you're in a car. So I would say mm -hmm. riding a bike. You ride a bike that yeah, doesn't I go anywhere. It. You ride a Peloton that goes nowhere. I do. I don't go anywhere. Do you have a, do you <laughs> have a regular, do you have a real bicycle? I do. I do. Yeah. And I, honestly, I would probably say walking for me uh -huh. because I I love being out in, a, in the fresh air, not like you know, hold up in a car. And that's part of the reason why I do love New York is because you mm -hmm. can just walk at, everywhere. And, and that's not such a realistic thing for yeah. Pittsburgh or Los Angeles. It's a little bit different. No, I know. Every time we're in New York together, you're always like, oh, I'll just walk over there. It's like 30 blocks away, but you're so happy just to be able to walk. <laughs> but most people are like, no, we got to get a taxi or get in the subway. But yeah. you love to walk. It's great. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.